Let us pray. Visit, O Lord, the homes in which your people dwell, and keep all harm and danger far from them. Grant that we may dwell together in peace under the protection of your holy angels, sharing eternally in your blessings, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, so um, continuing our section on Christian marriage, and it's hard to separate out marriage and family and uh, the difference between men and women. It's all interconnected. Uh, So we'll see uh, what all we get into tonight, but I am trying to kind of follow along with the book. And uh, we're going into the two sections in the book on page 116 tonight uh, called What in God Intends for Marriage and What Do I Do with All These Feelings? Um, I'm going to expand those quite a bit from uh, what the book says. But uh, last week uh, we covered what is marriage. So just as a short review, uh, marriage we first talked about as a divine institution, uh, the institution from God himself from even before the fall into sin. And uh, even though it is corrupted by sin, it is still a a very good thing, right? We did that, that good uh, um, creation is good, 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 good until God creates man and woman and then all of a sudden there's a not good when it's just man but then when marriage happens with Adam and Eve and Eve is created uh, for Adam and they're joined together in one flesh then all of a sudden everything is very good creation is complete and that'll that'll actually um, go into a little bit of what we well I don't know if we'll get there tonight but what we're going to say about the glory of God in marriage that uh, woman is uh, the the glory of the man who is the glory of God from 1 Corinthians 11 and what that means, uh, which is actually a really beautiful thing that Paul says. Uh, but from Genesis 2, we define marriage uh, from that divine institution as the one flesh union between one man and one woman uh, bound together in, in this holy contract uh, or holy covenant. And... Uh, we looked at that Genesis 2 passage that, that really gives us a very clear picture of what marriage is. Um, and then also at Ephesians 5, that marriage is the image of Christ and his church. Uh, so all of those things combined together, uh, the divine institution, the one flesh union, the uh, image of Christ and his church as being um, biblical marriage. Biblical marriage. Okay. So the question we want to ask tonight is what God intends for marriage. And, and, and this is going to get us into a lot of the kind of topics surrounding marriage um, from things like uh, procreation to monogamy uh, to the order of marriage. So um, we'll talk about all these things. And remember, we're not talking about the bad things with marriage yet. So we're not talking about the issues yet. Uh, there's a lot of issues that come up in marriage topics today, and that's what our world likes to focus on. Our world likes to focus on divorce and on fertility issues and um, on all these all these problems that come up surrounding marriage, homosexual marriage, uh, polygamous marriage, all these things. And we're going to cover all that in in as we get towards the end of the marriage section uh, before we talk about. Uh, the role of women in the church. But uh, first of all, we want to talk about how good marriage is, right? Because God says it's very good. And so in that very goodness, so to speak, what 
does God want the marriage to look like? Right? What, what form does this marriage take? What are the things that are entailed in a biblical marriage, in a Christian marriage? Um, and remember when we say Christian marriage, too, we, we just mean biblical marriage. We mean how God defines marriage. Marriage is actually given for both a believer and unbeliever. Right? So this is an institution which God graciously gives even to unbelievers, um, allows them to be married and, and practice marriage. And basically everything we say still applies uh, to, to unbelievers who are married. Um, there's a couple things that uh, can be a little different with an unbeliever's marriage that we'll talk about later. But um, when we say Christian marriage, we're talking about what, what does God define marriage as in his word? Right, so we're not even limiting this to uh, just well, this is how Christians do marriage, but everyone else can do marriage however they want, right? No, God instituted this for His whole creation, and um, that that's actually important because uh, that there are Christians out there who will say things like, well, I guess if homosexuals want to get married, that's fine, uh, as long as that doesn't happen in the church or something like that. And um, we'll get to that next section after after these two two sections here about who regulates marriage, the church or the state, and we'll talk about that more there. But suffice it to say for now that um, it actually does matter how the state or how the society that we live in practices uh, holy marriage because it is a, a creation thing that God institutes, a whole creation thing that God institutes – and wants them to function in a certain way for the good of society. So, um, anyhow, first of all, what does God intend for marriage? The first thing that I want to contend that God intends for marriage is blessings. And this, again, goes to the point of that marriage is very good. Marriage is not... uh, only all these like issues and troubles that we think about with marriage. In fact, most of marriage is simply, I think, <laughs> receiving God's blessings, um, or at least a, a good chunk of it, uh, along with the other things we're going to talk about, of course. Uh, but blessings come along with this, right? So in the Bible, whenever there's a covenant, um, there's always attendant blessings and curses. So when when God, for instance, makes a covenant with Abraham and says, um, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, uh, your children are going to be my people, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Right? He, he tells him what the blessings are going to be for that in Genesis 12. Um, there's, there's covenantal rights that have to happen, right? So circumcision gets instituted and, and these other things. But along with that covenant that's made, there's blessings. I'm going to make you the father of many of a multitude, uh, multitude nation. I'm going to uh, bless the nations through you, through your offspring, right? So there's blessings that come along with covenants. Well, marriage is a covenant, right? Marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman and a covenant that's made before God. And with that covenant come attendant blessings. And so what are some of these blessings that come with uh, marriage, there's, um, I'm not going to write them all down because I, I wrote a lot down in my notes, so you can write them down if you want, but they wouldn't fit on the board if I did it. Um, 
companionship, right? Fulfillment. Uh, marriage gives you a neighbor to love. So oftentimes people will ask, well, the Bible always talks about uh, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Well, and then the question is, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Is that limited to the person who lives in the house next to me or the house across the street from me? Is that uh, limited to the people that I sit next to in church, right? Is that, uh, who, who is my neighbor that I should love? And where do I find my neighbor? Well, if no one else is your neighbor, certainly your spouse is, right? <laughs> your spouse is a person that is close to you that you are given to love, uh, love as yourself, as you would yourself. And so uh, marriage gives, gives you a neighbor to love. That's a blessing, right? It's a blessing to, to be able to practice Christian love within a marriage and to have someone there to love and for some, have someone there that's going to love you back, right? And in that sense of uh, loving your neighbor, of the second great command, as Jesus says. Um, so it companionship, fulfillment, it gives you a neighbor to love. And then also it teaches us and it shows us the love that Christ has for us, right? So remember Ephesians 5, marriage is an image of Christ and his church. And so if husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church, then that kind of sacrificial love is going to teach both parties in the marriage, both the husband and the wife, what that love looks like, right? And then it's also going to teach the couple how, as part of the church, they should show devotion and love to Christ and his word in the same way that the wife does to the husband. And so that that image of Christ and his church, that's a, it's not just a, when we say image, it's not just a um, static picture that it's nice to look at. Oh, isn't that nice that God made it that the husband and wife relationship is similar to the Christ and church relationship? Oh, that's a nice thing that, you know, you can teach people in Bible class one day or whatever and then forget about no, that, that's, a, that's a dynamic reality, right? That, that the love that we experience as um, everyone here is married, so as, uh, as married spouses and as, as married Christians, the love that we experience within those, in, within those marriages is there to show us and teach us and, and demonstrate to us something about Christ and his church. And then we reciprocate that in the church. And then the and the and the church is blessed by that, right? So it's blessings upon blessings. So the the couple is blessed, and then the church is also blessed uh, by by this, right? So um, companionship, fulfillment, uh, gives us a neighbor to love, shows us the love of Christ. Um, marriage teaches us uh, and and grows in us the fruit of the spirit, right? If you think about um, some of the different fruits of the spirit that are called for. Uh, One of the good things about marriage, like I said it, to kind of expand that point about loving your neighbor, is that marriage gives us a place to practice the things of the Christian life. So in marriage, you get to practice being patient, right? You get to exercise self-control and chastity, right? So the the old word word for self-control was chastity. Uh, which was always kind of connected in some sense to this, to the idea of adultery and to the idea of 
um, of marriage that you would live a chaste life within your marriage, that, that you would have this one partner and um, that it would be monogamous, right? So uh, self-control, it gives you a, a way to practice self-control. It gives you a way to practice patience with one another, uh, a way to practice joy, right? Experiencing joy uh, with one another. All the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It gives you a place to live out that fruit of the Spirit in your life. Um, and that's a blessing. That's a blessing. Uh, marriage is a blessing because it is good for society, right? So that's something that we were just kind of mentioning, and we'll mention more when we get to that section about the church and state and marriage, is that uh, marriage is, and I think I said this last week, marriage is the foundational unit uh, the family, which comes from ma- the one flesh union, the family is the foundational unit unit of the church and of society, right? So we talked about those three uh, estates that L- Luther talks about, the three estates, uh, family, church, and society, and how the family unit is at the basis of all of those, and it goes, it grows out from there, right, and makes up those things. So Having good families, having good marriages is the basis of a good society. And I, I think you can, just as an aside, I think you can oftentimes judge the health of a society by judging the health of their marriages, right? And if you, if you track like the downfall of other things in society, then you'll oftentimes see a downfall of marriage, right, and a family. Uh, that marriage and family is, is going to be at the basis of of these things. Okay, so um, it's good for society and um, it's it's good for the church. That's another blessing. So that, along with just with what I was saying, good, good marriages, good families make up a good church. And um, good marriages bless the church. And on a very practical level, you can see that in what we call uh, natural church growth, right? When you have good marriages and you encourage Christian and biblical marriage, uh, what happens? Children are born, right? And children are baptized. And those children, it is, it is a good thing uh, that that children are born in the church and raised in Christian families. I sometimes I get this um, sense in the church that, and it's it's not necessarily a, a bad thing, but it's just it's interesting to me. It's an observation that. Oftentimes people are more impressed by converts to Christianity, like uh, that people who convert to Christianity have somehow have things better figured out, or um, are in a are are like in a better place um, than than people who simply grow up and continue to believe what they were taught when they were young. And I I'm kind of a convert uh, in some ways that. I, one, what, my family wasn't Lutheran until we were five, so we were converts to Lutheranism. And, and two, there was a time in my life in, in high school where I had um, drifted pretty far from the faith, and, and, I, and I came back. And whenever I talk to people about that, they're like, oh, like you, you seem, you understand things so much better because you're more passionate about it. Well, in a sense, that's true. Converts often do have a higher 
level of passion about it because oftentimes in their adult life they've thought through the importance of the things that uh, they confess. However, I will say that like my one hope for my children is that they learn the faith now and stay in the faith their whole life, right? That is, that is, a, that is a blessing. That is a good thing that, that children would grow, like they would only have, you know, a few days or a few weeks of their life where they are not baptized into the church of Christ. And that then for their whole life, they, they remain faithful to that faith in which they're baptized. And that, that's a blessing. And so that's, that's natural church growth. That's good church growth um, to bring in people through, through the procreation of children um, and to not have to bring them in later on. Right, that that's the ideal is that people are born into the faith and stay in the faith all the time. Of course, we want to bring people in later on too, right? Or bring people back if they left. But um, and and I think our evangelism efforts nowadays are much more going to be um, reaching out to people who have left the church and or adults who are going to be converting. Uh, to the faith later on in life uh, just because there's a lot more of those and there's a lot less kids being born than there used to be. Um, However, I would say that don't think of raising a family as a different activity than evangelism to people who need to convert, right? Because it really is the same activity. Like when I do devotions with my family at home, that's evangelism. That's, That's bringing them the gospel, and 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 teaching them the faith right and the great thing is at at this point in my life and at this point in their life they have to sit there and listen to me right um so that that's not true with with adults but it's the same activity right it's the same it's it's really the same activity raising them up in the faith and so anyway marriage is good for the church that's what i'm saying um, one of and on the practical level because it does cause what we'd call natural church growth, right? That, that there would be, and and the beautiful thing about this is you know when we think about Genesis one, be fruitful and multiply, that it's well within a family's uh, a marriage's possibility to not only you know let's say replace uh, for kind of a sterile term. Uh, the numbers of the mother and father, if there's two kids, right? But then actually grow the church, right? Um, if there's more than just two children, right? So, uh, well, for, I mean, first of all, when you even when you have one or two kids, that's then three or four people in the church where before there was just two, right? But then if you think kind of long-term about people are going to die and people are going to be born, well, if two people in a church have four kids well when those two people die there was there's now four adults when at one time there were just two adults there right so um actually the idea of being fruitful and multiplying right that really there is such a thing as as growth and um well never mind i thought about talking about the world population for a second but uh which is not actually a problem my my basic contention is that god 
loves people and wants wants people born. But uh, anyway, that's that's beside the point. Also, if you drive across Iowa, you realize that overpopulation is not a problem. Um, anyway, it's not really not that complicated. Uh, all right. So that's blessings, right? So so one of the th- that and and this is. I think this is just so often overlooked that one of the things God intends for marriage is to bless his people, to bless his church, to bless this creation, to bless society. Um, God wants to bless through marriage. And that's wonderful, right? It's beautiful. Why, why would we ever uh, beguile such a, such a good gift? Okay, so that's the first thing he intends. Um, now we're going to get into maybe more of the specifics of things that God intends for marriage. Uh, the second thing that I want to talk about, having let my marker now dry out. Oops. Hey, this is a good one. Uh, lifelong monogamy. Lifelong monogamy. Uh, so this kind of covers two things. One is that uh, marriage should be for uh, life. This is um, what God intends that uh, man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And holding fast uh, requires not letting go, right? So um, in the beginning, it's not that there's uh, a man who leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife and then lets her go and then goes and finds another wife to hold fast to, right? That's not... Um, that's that's not what hold fast means. And this is what, whenever the Pharisees ask Jesus about divorce in Matthew 19, this is what he goes back to. He says, yes, divorce uh, was permitted by Moses because of your hardness of heart, but what was, it said, what was said from the beginning? And he quotes Genesis 2. A man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So marriage is meant to be lifelong. Now, we will talk about divorce when we get to that topic and what the what lawful divorce is and what unlawful divorce is and so on and so forth. Uh, but for now, suffice it to say that in the goodness of marriage, it is uh, meant to be a lifelong companionship uh, between husband and wife. Um, and that's good, right? I mean, that's what everyone always says, at least, is that they, they want to find someone that they can grow old and die with, right? So um, I think it, we intrinsically recognize the goodness of a, a relationship that can be lifelong. And uh, that's that's part of the foundation of the marriage vows, too. Till death do us part. Till death do us part. Us do part. I can't remember. It It's... In the in the Lutheran service book agenda, it's the opposite of what it is in the movies. Oh. So it's always confusing whenever I go whenever I go to a Lutheran wedding, you know, till till death. I think it's till death us do part in the. Anyway, it's like a more old school way of saying it, basically. But okay, and then second is uh, of that is monogamy, um, and. That goes to the definition of marriage in Genesis, which is one man and one woman. And it is true, so just to deal with polygamy in the Old Testament for a second, it is true that like divorce, 
polygamy was allowed in the Old Testament um, because the people were disobedient. However, that is not ever commended as a good form of marriage, right? So it is true that marriage can exist in adulterated forms. Um, and I mean, in a, in a sense, I don't want to take this too far. In, in a sense, um, things like homosexual marriage and bestiality even and other adulterous acts are, uh, you could talk about, about that as adulterated forms of marriages, right? Because uh, what there in, in the Bible, there's not really a distinction between uh, the sexual act and marriage, right? Those things are connected, right? That the one flesh union is meant uh, for marriage, and marriage is the one flesh union, right? So uh, whenever there's adulterous acts done, that is adulterating marriage itself. And so anyway, back to polygamy. Uh, this adulterated form of marriage, polygamy, did exist in the Old Testament, and even some of the kings um, and other biblical figures uh, practiced it. If you look, however, at those stories, the things never went well, right? They, uh, it, it often just caused problems. When, uh, say, for instance, David had, had multiple wives, it, caused, it just caused problems in his life. And that is because God wants to bless through marriage, and there's attendant blessings and cursings with, curses within the covenant of marriage, and when marriage is adulterated, things aren't going to go well, right? Uh, in the same way that in the fourth commandment, God says, honor your father and mother that things may go well with you, right? And if you have a father and a mother and a child and the child is disobedient and lazy, things don't go well for him, right? He gets disciplined. He gets grounded, right? Uh, whatever, whatever it may be. In the same way, in a marriage, if the form of marriage, one man, one woman, is adulterated in some way, then it is uh, not going to go well for people, and it, and it doesn't. Um, and then we get to the New Testament, right? And monogamy is clearly proclaimed. So again, Matthew 19, Jesus goes back to the to Old Testament and says, yeah, these things were permitted. What was it like in the beginning? It was Adam and Eve, right? One man, one woman. And then, you know, uh, when Paul is giving the requirements for pastors, uh, he says that they have to be above reproach, which means no one can... Um, accuse them of any outward public sin. And part of that is being the husband of one wife, right? And, and so we can see there that, that image that the, the ideal form of marriage is monogamous marriage. Um, and then obviously also, I'd be remiss not to say this, the sixth commandment uh, intuitively and implicitly commands monogamy, right? That to have multiple wives would demand that you'd be committing adultery with your first wife, right? If, if you had a wife and then you found another wife, that would be adultery. And so monogamy is the, uh, 
is what God intends for Christian marriage. All right. Um, and, and I should also say this, uh, that this lifelong monogamy, when you combine those things, that's where you get the idea of contract or covenant, right? That these two, um, again, that from Genesis 2, a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, that the two people being joined together and holding fast to one another. And I think, by the way, that you can also say, I, I haven't done too much research on this or, or thought about it too much, but I have often thought that when, the, when, when Genesis 2 says that, that's really shorthand for a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and a woman should leave her father and mother and hold fast to her husband. That, that, that's really a two-way street. Um, and the fact that it just uses the man first and then leaves it halfway complete is just shorthand. But I don't think that there's anything really specific about whether it's the man or the woman, but they, because they both have to leave their households and hold fast to one another. Um, anyway, that's, that's kind of a pet thought of mine that I want to explore more later. But... Um, this is the the, con, the this is the binding contract of marriage, and um, this is good, right? So our world often bucks at this idea of like a binding contract or a command under God's God's law, but th- this is a good thing that God does, and the reason it's good. And the reason that we have to take it seriously that this is a true contract or covenant under God's divine law is because what this does is it ensures the institution of marriage, right? Uh, like I said last week, marriage is something you marry into and you get to be a part of, but it doesn't belong to you. You don't get to define the terms. And whenever one man and one woman come together in a one flesh union bound together by this contract, then uh, that is going to ensure the blessings that we already talked about that God wants to give, right? It's going to ensure the benefit on society of marriage, right? When I, I mean, I think um, no-fault divorce, for instance, did a lot of harm to this country because all of a sudden you had people able to say that, um, you know, we want to take this institution of marriage and basically say that that contract doesn't matter anymore, right? That there's no, for no reason at all, we can dissolve this contract. It's not binding. It's not a binding contract with a no-fault divorce, right? Um, I mean, the society had recognized for a long time that if you were going to dissolve this contract, there better be a good reason, right? Um, and it's funny, I've had people tell me when they've told me that they're divorced, that, um, and, and I understand a lot of people have gone through divorces and not all of them have been great situations, you know, and there is repentance and forgiveness of sins and, and all of that. But it is funny to me when, when someone will tell me they, they've been through a divorce that, oh, don't, don't worry, pastor, it was a good divorce. No one was at fault, and uh, it was very amicable, and um, 
we, we, it was no fault, and, every, and we settled in court, and everything went really smoothly. And I'm like, don't tell me that. I don't, I don't want your divorce to go smoothly. If you're, you're dissolving a contract of God's divine law. Like, that, it should, if that's happening, something must have gone really bad, right? And if you're doing that haphazardly, then you shouldn't be getting divorced. <laughs> because, uh, well, we'll get there when we get there, but um, the only lawful divorce in, in the Bible is uh, because of adultery or abandonment. And we'll talk about what that, what that means. But, um, you know, you can't just treat a covenant of God's law <laughs> haphazardly and say, oh, the, you know, it's all nice. It's all good. We can just kind of ignore that, right? Um, that, that this binding contract. Anyway, but it ensures the blessings, right? And if you think about uh, kids, um, you can see all these studies now about kids and how successful they are, if they stay in church, uh, what what all the factors are in, in a kid's life about uh, if they're going to commit crime, all these different things. And almost always it goes back to did they have a father and a mother at home, right? Um, there's, there's, uh, there was a study done recently, I think by Hillsdale College, that said that showed that um, more than any other factor, the factor that, com- that related to counties where, I don't know if it was just in a certain area or in the United States or what, um, but counties where more crime was committed than, than other places, the, the one prevailing factor uh, wasn't race as much as it was fatherlessness. That more, even more than, so like oftentimes you think of um, you know, race or about uh, other factors that where crime is committed more. Yeah, socioeconomic factors, more, more than economic factors, more than poverty. It was fatherlessness. That's where crimes are committed the most is places that are the most fatherless. And then also in church, right, um, there's all these statistics about if if just mom goes to church, there's so much of a chance that the kid will stay in church growing up. If mom, if uh, just dad goes to the church, then it's a little bit better than if, if, if just mom goes to church. Um, the father seems more important in that regard. Um, but if both mom and dad are faithful in attending church together, then it's it skyrockets that that the kid is more likely to stay in church as an adult. Um, so all these things that so the contract, the lifelong monogamy, the holding fast together of marriage, it is not just for the husband and wife. It's also for the kids, right? And there's a lot of modern psychology out there that's absolute baloney on this. That I, I remember someone saying to me one time. Um, it was actually, it was really crazy. It was a teacher in high school who was talking to us about life, not about whatever he was supposed to be teaching us. And he was going through a divorce and, you know, probably really, really sad situation, I'm sure. But uh, I don't know why he was telling us about this. I mean, I was just a 10th grader, but um, he said that their marriage counselor told them to get divorced for the sake of the kids because every time they went through a fight the kid was going through that fight too 
And so it'd be better if they were just separate and not not divorced from one or uh, not divorced from one another and not not married anymore, so that they'd stop fighting. And I'm like that. I mean, I don't know why I remember that. Um, maybe because it was just kind of shocking to me that I was hearing a teacher tell me about his divorce. But um, that's baloney. <laughs> uh, that I mean, and I would use stronger language if this wasn't being recorded. But um, that marriage is for the good of the children. Now they should stop fighting. I agree with that. But divorce is not just an answer to make people behave better, right? All you're doing when people get divorced, if, if people are just allowed to get divorced for because they don't like each other anymore or whatever, all that's saying is that basically they can do whatever they want and not have any consequences, right? Uh, they can they can break whatever of God's laws that they want and not have any consequences. Um, and you're saying to God, yeah, this thing that you gave me that that is this divine institution, um, you know, I'm just going to mold it however I want it to look like in my life, right? And and it doesn't. And I knew I knew that I actually was in school with with this guy's daughter, and um, the the divorce did not do well for her, right? Uh, the the divorce um, did not help her become a better person uh, because she saw her parents fight less or something like that, right? Um, anyway. All right, uh, so so that 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 lifelong monogamy is is for the good of all the blessings that God gives. That's my point. Okay, we got 15 minutes. We'll see how much we get on this. Uh, so the next uh, thing that God intends for marriage that I want to talk about is order and duty. Order and duty, and this will overlap a bit with what we're going to talk about in the next chapter of the book, which is the role of women in the church and also kind of men and women in general as far as that goes. Um, and this whole feminism thing we're constantly dealing with in our society. Um, I should underline this one since all the other ones are underlined. But uh, let's let's go ahead and turn to... Um, I want to read two different passages and then kind of talk about them in tandem. So the first one is uh, 1, 1 Corinthians 11... And let's see here. I got to figure out where I want to go to. Um, yeah, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11 verses 2 to 12. Now, as a preface, this is talking of, this is Paul's famous section on uh, head coverings. And if you want to know, about head coverings, ask me later, because we're not actually going to talk about head coverings specifically, but there's some things that he says in here about the relation of man and woman that are really important um, and about and about marriage. So, uh, well, how about someone, uh, someone read uh, verses 2 to 11 of 1 Corinthians 11? It's a little bit of a long section, but go ahead. Someone go for it. For holding to the traditions, just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. 
Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair. <laughs> I know this is funny, but have her hair cut off. But if, <laughs> but if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her head, hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought to not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was a man created for woman, but, excuse me, but woman for man. For it is, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Okay, that's good. Yep. And then uh, keep the finger there. And... Uh, well, who's cutting off their hair? Come on. That's what Paul says. Um, all right. Ephesians 5 now, which we've already visited once. But um, Ephesians 5, verses uh, 22 through 32. And if someone wants to take that, they can, or otherwise I can. It doesn't matter to me. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 32. Or 33. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves him, his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Uh, 33. All right, so good. Um, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, yeah. Um, so a couple things here. One, first of all, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. Uh, but for the for the recording's sake and and uh, just for all our reminders' sake, I, I want to recall what I said last week that when we approach the topic of marriage, and this is one of the um, areas especially where we want to tell ourselves before we get to this topic that Scripture is Scripture, right? And God's word is God's word, and we might very well have blind spots because of our society, because of our upbringing, uh, because of our own sinful nature and temptation, because 
of the devil's temptations, whatever, we might have blind spots to biblical truths. And we might need to be reminded of what the biblical truth is and conform ourselves to it. But if we say to ourselves and if we promise ourselves that no matter what we come away finding from the scriptures, we're going to conform to it, then that's actually not that painful of a process. It just It's actually a good process because it means repentance and it means then being in conformity with God's word, which is only going to bring blessing. Um, it, might, it might bring suffering, but suffering can be a blessing. So um, anyhow, I just want to say whenever we're talking about man as the head and woman as the helper, that can rub a lot of people in our society the wrong way. And when we talk about order in a marriage, that can rub a lot of people in our society the wrong way. But this is the clear biblical teaching um, from Genesis 2 all the way through Revelation. And we, just because society doesn't, it wants to be egalitarian and um, feminist and, and all this stuff, we still have to hold to the biblical teaching. So um, the basic principle here in both 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, and even Genesis 1 and 2, is that uh, the husband is the head, or you could say leader, or you could say um, the, uh, well, let's just say head or, head or leader. Um, and then the wife in a marriage is the the traditional word which i uh i kind of like i don't know i just i like old school stuff um is help meet um but the helper uh or the the word that the bible prefers here that paul prefers is uh submission um or we could say you know the submitter the the one who submits uh to the to the leader to the head and um let me just this this isn't in my notes, but uh, I, I'm 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 gonna basically cover this from a more theological perspective, but let me just first say that when we say this, no one in the history of the church has ever that's a true Christian has ever said that this means that the husband has license to beat his wife or to abuse his wife emotionally. Um, whatever that may look like, or that this means that the the wife must uh, never rebel against her husband if her husband is doing uh, something the wrong way, right? So in the same way that God has given us uh, the government as a good thing to execute justice, and we're supposed to obey the government, Romans 13, uh, there are times where we must obey God rather than men, Acts 5, right? Um just because God gives children parents to lead them and to guide them, um, there are times when it's okay for children to rebel against their parents' uh, authority if they are going to do uh, something sinful, if they're commanding them to do something sinful. So uh, when Saul commands da- Jonathan to tell him where David is and David li- and Jonathan lies to him beca- to protect David's life, that's a good thing, right? So, okay. In the same way that if a husband is trying to tell his wife to sin, then the wife can rebel against him, right? So th- this is 
to me, this is just plainly obvious. Um, but whenever you start to talk about head and, and submission, then you, you get these people out of the woodwork that say, oh, you're, 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 you're promoting that husbands beat their wives and that, uh, that, that wives have, have no autonomy whatsoever and so on and so forth. Obviously, we're not saying that, right? Paul's not saying that. Obviously, Christ does not... So Ephesians 5, church, Christ in the church is the image. Obviously, Christ does not abuse his church, right? Or beat his church. Duh. Okay, let's get that out of the way. All right, now, um, what it is saying, however, is that there is such a thing as godly order. And like I was just saying... There's tons of places in God's creation where he has instituted order in society. God is a God of order. He's not a God of confusion. And uh, this is in families with parents and children, right? Children are not in charge of the whole family. Children do not get to dictate where the family goes and what the family does, right? Uh, If they did, then we would just live at the ice cream shop and eat junk food all day. Right, and that would not be good. Um, there is the order of well, Christ and His Church, and the the Church doesn't just get to make up its own doctrine. Right, God gives the Word uh, to command from Christ what we should and shouldn't do. Right, otherwise we would just go the way of the world. Uh, we need that order. There is the government and citizens. Right, citizens need a government uh, to. Uh, execute justice, otherwise there would just be anarchy, right? So this is the lie of egalitarianism in our society is that all order is somehow bad, right? When when God is actually a God of order and institutes order in basically every aspect of our lives, right? There's employers and employees. And if uh, you, you can't just have everyone be equal on everything all the time, otherwise nothing would ever get done and things would be chaotic. So it is in marriage, there's an order, and God instituted it to where the husband would be the leader, the head, to give the direction to the marriage, and the wife would be to help in that mission, right? The husband would have a mission for the family, and the wife would be there to help that mission, however uh, God has blessed her to do so. And uh, so that's, that's the first thing, right? Um, and in fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, I love this because there's even order within the Trinity, right? Uh, The husband is the head of the wife as uh, Christ is the head of the husband as God is the head of Christ. That um, even while, so, and and none of this has to do with value, right? So the first, the the lie that the world will tell you is that this this is all a value judgment, that an employee is less valuable than their employer, that a wife is less valuable than the husband, that a citizen is less valuable than the government somehow. Um, not, that, that when you start to apply this to other areas, it, it becomes nonsensical. Uh, obviously, when we apply it to the Trinity, it's completely nonsensical. The son is not less valuable than the father. Uh, the son is begotten of the father, and the father does command the son uh, to to go and and die on the cross for the sins of the world, and the and the father raises him again, 
And so in that sense, God the Father is the head of the Son. But as we confess, they're both God, right? It's the Trinity. Both persons are the one God. And they are not less uh, than each other in glory or less than each other in majesty. They are not less, one is not more valuable or less valuable than the other. And so um, order does not dictate value. Order is not a value judgment, um, right? Difference in roles, and this also gets to duties. So uh, the order is going to dictate what duties, what roles uh, the husband and wife have in marriage. And just because people have different roles, so just because an employee has a different uh, job than his employer, that does not ever indicate any kind of value judgment on them as people or on them as, uh, yeah, we'll just say, we'll say people in this case, right? In the same way that there's not a value distinction because the Father and the Son have different roles within the Trinity at times, um, even though they're involved in each other's work, uh, that does not mean that there is a value uh, distinction there, okay? So uh, if you get this wrong, that um, order and duty are non-existent in a marriage, which is what our modern world wants to say, right? That the husband and wife are completely interchangeable. Um, anything the, the husband can do, the wife can do. Anything the wife can do, the husband can do. Um, if the husband can, can go out and work and have a career, so can the wife. If the wife can stay at home uh, with, with children, so can the husband, right? Any, if, the, if the wife can cook, the husband, the husband should be able to cook. If uh, the husband can take out the trash, the wife should be able to take out the trash. I mean, I'm using kind of silly examples to start with, but if you mix these things, if you, if you say, if you deny that, if, if, if you say that, if you take the egalitarian approach, and deny order and duty and say that there, there's no order, there's no difference in roles in a marriage, then that is going to lead to a lot of big problems. And it's actually my contention then that things like transgenderism, which I think is, like, transgenderism is, is kind of great in the sense that it's so obviously wrong to everybody. I mean, except for like the people who are completely delusional and, and buy into it. But, but to most normal people, it is disgusting that a man would want to castrate himself and take estrogen and, and dress up like a woman. I mean, it's insanity, right? It's it, like, no, like most sane people, even if they're complete unbelievers, understand that. Um, and same thing if it's going the other way. Anyway, but where, what's the fundamental lie about that, about transgenderism? It's that we're all interchangeable and we can all be whatever we want to be and there's no distinction between people. And that's the lie of feminism. That's the lie of homosexuality. Uh, that's, that's the lie um, even, even of polygamy, I would say, or um, what we have now is not always called polygamy, but polyamory, where you can have however, whatever concoction of 
men and women and transgenders and whatever, all in one marriage, right? Um, you know, multiple poly, so as many as you want. Uh, that's the fundamental lie, is that everyone's interchangeable and everyone's equal. And there's no such thing as order and there's no such thing as, as roles, duty, in a, in, a relation, in a marriage. And so this is why God clearly, clearly here in 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, Genesis, um, anywhere marriage is really talked about in the Bible, clearly indicates that there is an order to these things. And, and uh, to transgress that order is to transgress his law and to transgress what marriage was instituted to be. Um, okay, so we will leave it there. Next week, I want to talk, uh, pick this back up, same topic, and I want to talk about, uh, I want to talk about glory um, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. So uh, let me... Let me, let me star that here. We'll pick that back up next week. Um, and this is going to blow away the idea that this is some kind of value distinction. Um, because in 1 Corinthians 11, you get the list of God, Christ, man, woman. And uh, people think of this whenever Paul says this, as some kind of order of value, right? That things get less and less valuable as you go on or as less and less important as you go down the list. I'm going to actually say that it's a completely different structure than we're dealing with this kind of list here. Um, Paul's saying something very different. So we'll talk about that next week. Any questions or comments? Anything tonight? Mm-hmm. Read the whole right. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. No, it's always anytime someone is unfaithfully taking something from the Bible, they're they're generally just taking it out of context, right? I mean, uh, context in 99% of cases is going to make things pretty clear. I mean, some some things you have to go a little deeper into the context of the whole Bible and you know, explain certain things, but it really isn't that complicated. And I mean, nothing that, the crazy thing to me is that like, I have to walk on eggshells a little bit in in how I talk about these things. And um, I'm not very good at walking on eggshells, but uh, I'm, you know, I'm supposed to, and that I have to go into like detail about all these things. I mean, this, to me, having you know experienced this and studied this and looking back in history like this all seems like it should be so obvious to everyone i mean uh it that it's just insanity to think that uh to think some of the things the world takes for granted nowadays the the egalitarianism and and such um and i mean what we can talk about like kind of where history's gone and and things that that'll come up more in that um documentary i want to show on feminism which covers the history of feminism but uh yeah i mean it wasn't like that long ago um you know let's say prior to the 20th century because really all feminism developed from the early 20th century on um you know so just over 100 years ago 120 years ago that 
most of at least America at that time took this stuff for granted, like that that there was an order and duty in marriage and that uh, there was a certain way things should be done and that marriage was intended for one man and one woman. I mean, <laughs> I told Steve the other, uh, he was saying about how when after Obama got elected the first time, then well, was it the first or second term? After Obama got elected the second time, uh, there were people who came here and asked about what the church believed about marriage or whatever. And I told Steve he should have just said, well, I, th- I believe what Obama believed about 10 years ago. <laughs> because that's – I mean, this even even a homosexual marriage, like Obergefell and stuff like that, I mean, within within my lifetime, basically no one, not even any crazy politicians, uh, thought that – homosexual marriage should be legal like um so they used to do all these deviant things used to keep them under wraps right and now it's all out yeah right it's I mean, still they're still deviant right it's just they're out and, and it was bad it was bad when they were doing it under wraps too right. but but it is just an it, it is a kind of insane it's to in me yeah now. anyway and you get in trouble if you say it right yeah you get fired yeah, Steve. The conflict or suffering conflict in a marriage is a sanctifying moment, you know. And, you know, as far as you know, we're to be taught their sanctification, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I actually wrote my final research paper. I took a class, an elective on sanctification, my fourth year of seminary, and I wrote it, my research paper for that class on how marriage actively sanctifies the Christian. And there's a lot of interesting passages that kind of talk that way, like um, the woman will be saved through her childbearing, um, that that marriage and family puts a woman in this situation. That's 1 Timothy chapter 5, I believe. Um, that marriage and family creates this situation where sanctification uh, naturally will exist. Anyway, I can talk about that later, but... Uh, very, very interesting stuff. But yeah, I mean, that that blessings that God provides through marriage are are so um, such a multitude of blessings God provides. So, all right. Any final questions, comments? Let's end in a quick word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the divine gift of holy marriage, and we pray that you would keep it holy among us and in our lives. Uh, we pray that our marriages being an image of Christ and the church would be a witness to the world. And we pray that you would uh, bless our marriages, uh, the marriages of of this church and all Christian marriages to be uh, what you intended and to um, bless those husbands and wives who seek to live according to your will. We pray this through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.